You are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Typically, though, I, I do use and I do prefer the airflow lines. Okay. Is is what I use. They just have like less memory. I remember the one time when we were in New Zealand, I had too much bourbon the night before, and Brian, I have trouble with his last name, Daniel Kavich. Yeah. We went out for our practice session, and there I am, stripping off the line off my reel, and it's all coiled below us, and Brian and I are literally shoulder to shoulder, sitting in our chair, trying to cast, and I cast out trying to get the knots and everything else out of my line. And he looks at me, he's like, you didn't stretch your line this morning? And I'm like, no, did you not see how I look this morning? And while I'm doing that, I catch one of the first fish in the first two hours that we were out there. I'm like, see, you just have to count down. <laughs> There's nothing worse though than having a lot of coils on your line. And we, I think oh. we've all been there. Yeah, and when when you're actually competing, you do want to make sure that your lines are stretched and you're ready to go. It was thankfully just a practice session. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers, gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing. The Fly Crate offers a monthly fly club. We select patterns every month for your home waters. With membership, you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area, along with the Fly Crate's guide magazine, the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door, some sweet stickers. Discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now. Theflycrate.com. Here's your host, Mark Hopley. Well, support for the Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. Take your time, fellas. Manscaped has you covered. Men, let's be honest. If you're still shaving your face and body with the same trimmer, you're probably doing it wrong. Boost your confidence with this new body trimmer from Manscaped. Take me time to the best time with a smooth shave. Get 20% off and free shipping worldwide with this code FF. 97 podcast that's ff97 podcast at manscape.com 20% off free shipping worldwide use the best tools for the job welcome to this edition of the fly fishing 97 podcast very happy you chose to join us wherever you're listening on the planet and we are going to take you out to beautiful british columbia canada uh, we are going to prince george actually just outside of prince george we've got colette stroud on the line now colette is a avid fly fisher a competitive fly fisher she grew up in chetwind uh is now now calls prince george home she's an ambassador with chinook wind outfitters uh smart angling canada started competitive angling back in 2009 provincial national even commonwealth fly fishing championships um she was to be the first canadian woman to represent canada at the Commonwealth Fly Fishing Championships. We'll talk all about that, quite a story behind that. Hey, Colette, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I, I, I'm very excited to talk because I know we've got lots of ground, lots of water we can cover, but I always like to start off at the kind of the beginning of your fly fishing journey, if you will. So how did you come to um, the world of fly fishing? Start at the beginning for us. Oh, wow. My dad, we, uh, I was actually born in the Crow's Nest Pass. Um, we lived in Hillcrest at the time. And when I was a kid, my dad used to go out fly fishing, and he was an angler, like gear angling, but got into fly fishing and wanted to match the hatch and see what he could find. And I'd go along the riverbank and roll over the rocks and pick up the bugs that he thought he should have. And because he wasn't pure fly fishing, sometimes he would use those bugs as bait. And I had no idea at the time that devil scratchers could actually bite, because thankfully then I didn't get bitten. But then later in the years, he'd take me out. When we moved to Chatwin, we'd go out in the boat, and I would basically just troll a fly around. It was a dog Spratly or another traditional pattern, and Dad would be casting out of a canoe, so I learned how to balance myself in a boat at a young age. And from there, it progressed into 
fly casting in our friend's yard and learning how to actually cast. And then he opened a fly shop. I can't even remember what year it was. But then I started helping him in the fly shop in Chatwind. It was Northern Pleasures fly fishing for anybody who might remember back then. And then from there, it just progressed. I didn't have any experience in still waters at the time. It was mostly just all streams and rivers. So that came later on, mostly into the competitive years. But my dad definitely was an influence when I was younger and also met Rob, my husband, while he was running the fly shop in Chatwin. Rob stopped in and for six years he tried to set us up. <laughs> your your dad did. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah, they call him their hand picked son in law. <laughs> That's awesome. So so dad's avid fly fisher, husband's avid fly fisher. You're obviously it's in your DNA by the sounds of it. Um, yeah. If you had to kind of look back on who influenced you, and you probably alluded to it, but um, name some names. I always like to go down that rabbit hole. Who who else did you learn from along the way? Well, I think in the early years, obviously, it was my dad, and then meeting up with my husband, Rob. I always tried to encourage it with people when I was in my late teens. Nobody ever really wanted to do it, so... Finally, when I actually got into it and fly fishing, it was Rob. And then we had a few friends here and there that would fly fish with us. And I don't think it was really until Rob got into the competitive angle of it, like back in 2004, 2005, we started meeting other people. So like Wayne Yoshizawa, he was one of the major ones. Todd Oshi, he was a major one. And then... Later, meeting up with Deb, I didn't know anybody else who was a female that competed. I did meet April Volke, and at the time, I didn't take her serious because I walked into the fly fishing show. What is that down the lower mainland that they have? Oh, the um, that's the one in, like, Chilliwack? Yeah, the sport fishing sport? show. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, I, I came in the, off. I forget the name of it. Yeah, I think sorry. it's just the sport fishing, they have boats and everything else. And right. April worked at Reaction Fly and Tackle at the time, and I think she was really the first other female that I'd met at the time, other than friends of mine, that fished. But I walked in off night shift just looking for a pair of waders. And she was so over-exuberant because she saw somebody else that was a female that fly fished, and I just couldn't take her energy in the early morning coming off night shift. And at that time, they had just come out with I think Springbrook had come out with their purple waders for women in neoprene. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, yeah, no thanks. I'll just take a men's small in the lightweight. I love it. Because, yeah, that was when they first came out with the breathable waders. Right. And there's so many pictures of me fishing in, like, men's waders where you can obviously see they're too big. I'm either floating in the river or whatever else. So when she pointed out the, the purple Springbrooks, I'm like, no, no. And she also had her nails on. And I was like, how does she even change a fly? And at that moment, after I realized a couple of weeks later, with talking to her at Reaction, that I misjudged her and I myself am judging another female right. within the industry because she has long nails and little bling blings in them but that doesn't mean anything she can still go out and fish or do whatever and we did have plans to meet up on the schedule at the time it didn't work out but i love her podcast uh, by the way that was was one of the first podcasts i really started listening to when she started and uh yeah the passion is is, you know it's overwhelming Uh, right and i can only imagine yeah you know, back in the day, I mean, because you've been doing this a long time, Colette, but when you look back, I mean, and, and this is something I keep hearing, you know, there's more and more women coming into the sport, but it always seems, I, I don't know, I have a hard time getting um, gals on this show, and I don't know, maybe I'm just not calling the right people or just maybe going about it wrong. I just kind of names come up and I just reach out, but um, you must, I mean, you must have seen a big, big move in the last, you know, 10, 20 years in the world of fly fishing, and how how many more women are, are doing it? Probably more so just in the past five years, really. Yeah. Like, I knew, and I still only know a handful of women that I would actually go out on the water with and, 
like I go out on the water and I just fish. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm scared of getting hurt. I'm scared of doing this. I'm scared of bears. But there's only a handful of women that I know who are experienced. Like Deb, she's been out there. Obviously, April, I've never fished with her. We've never sat down, had a conversation, or fished together. Um, well, Adrian, she's fished out in on the Skeena there, so she's had a few run-ins with bears. Right. Sunny was another woman. I, Sandra Kloof, I think her name was. She was an older woman, not old, but she's about 10 years older than I was at the time when I got in, still is. But she was also another woman. She fishes on the island, so she's aware of bears and everything else. But mm-hmm. I think mostly in the past five years, I've noticed a big influx of women wanting to be on the water. Yeah. I think Previous to that, it it like even to get my girlfriends out to go out fishing was like, what are you talking about? I don't I don't want to do that. Like, let's just sit around the fire and drink some beers and camp at the lake. And I'm like, oh look, there's fish rising. Right. <laughs> I'm always wanting to be out there. So well, it's it's one sport or one pastime. I I, I struggle sometimes with the word sport, but it's some it's a pastime. It's something that we do that. I heard you say it in a quote. You don't have to be the strongest person in the world. You don't have to be faster than somebody. You just have to be passionate about it and learn the water. I mean, it's it doesn't the water the fish don't care whether you're you're a guy or a gal. No, you know. But why don't? But you, I think it's go ahead. intimidating sometimes too to women to be on the water with men. But that's not what it is. It's just on the water. Yeah. Talk to me about what it's like to have a partner as invested in in the pastime. I mean, it must be. I mean, you guys must spend a lot of quality time out there, um, you know, on and off the water. But it must be extra special when when your spouse is involved in it. I would I would imagine. Yeah, I well, because that's all I've ever known. But mm-hmm. I mean, I compete with men, and they're like, "Oh, I owe my wife this vacation because I got to take this time off," or oh, I did this, and so my wife gets to do that. Rob and I, we, our vacations are always planned around fishing. So we went to Hawaii, I think, six years ago, because we always do a winter trip, except for COVID, just to get a break from the winters up here. And we went to Hawaii, and the two friends that we went with, they were training for the Boston Marathon. Mm -hmm. So at 6 a.m., they would leave to go running for four hours, and Rob and I would hand to, we'd just head down to the beaches and we would fish and catch whatever and we would meet up with them, go on our little tours and like every vacation that we have together is always planned around fishing. Yeah. So when cool. I hear other people they're like, Oh, I have to go here, I have to go there I mean, well, it sucks to be you <laughs> <laughs> And even Rob will go on a holiday. He does a steelheading trip every year with his his boys. And even when he's off steelheading, if I can't, I don't like being out in the cold. I don't like to be freezing to death. So I'll plan a fish fishing trip with one of my girlfriends, or you know somebody else to come up, and it's perfect fall fishing at that time. So he can go freeze his butt off in the river, and I'll just go hang out at the lake. But it's just nice to have a spouse that has the same mindset as you because you never have to worry about, oh, I have to give up this to do this. Right. We always have the same thoughts in mind. We're going here and we're doing this. Yeah, that's And cool. this is what we're targeting. Good stuff. Well, I want to take uh, some time to get to know you on and off the water. You ready for a few questions that uh, they don't necessarily have a lot to do with fishing? Some some of them do. <laughs> um, okay, you let, can try, but everything's fishing. Let's talk tunes. Well, you must listen to music or something on the way to the water. So, I mean, are you? Um, you know, what's playing in the in the truck on the stereo on your way fishing? Uh, typically, blaring's John Lee Hooker. Oh, nice. Yeah, and then Johnny Cash. I always play Johnny Cash when I'm trying to amp myself up, yeah. especially during competition. I just need that oomph. So yeah. Johnny Cash, John Lee Hooker. I grew up, my dad always listened to a huge range of music. So I got all his albums, his vinyl, 2,500 vinyl albums. Hmm. Wow. And a record player. Cool. It's- so yeah, there's... But usually John Lee Hooker, I'll play it. There's like six tunes on the one CD I listen to, and it's on replay. 
Yeah. <laughs> Those get pretty ingrained. Right yeah. Um, now, I know that you fish a lot of still water, but you also fish a lot of rivers. Um, and I'm not going to ask you to choose between the two, but if you could pick one go-to fly pattern for the still and maybe one go-to fly pattern for moving water in your neck of the woods, what are you reaching for more often than not? Oh, my notorious pattern is an H&L variant. H&L variant. I used to fish that because I grew up fishing streams and rivers. Still water is new to me. I hated it. Hmm. But that H&L variant, man, it can be fished on dry. It can be fished sunk. It can be fished in a lake. It's a versatile pattern all around. Is it a soft tackle? What what kind of pattern is that? No, it's a dry pattern. I I don't even know it. It's kind of like a, a white wolf. Okay. Is okay. what you'd probably know it as. So it could look like a little mayfly or chronomid or whatever. Yeah, and the one time, well, when Rob and I first started fishing together before we started dating, that was my pattern, and the hackle came loose because the wire came off, and it just left a trail, and the fish just devoured it. Hmm. It's funny how that can happen sometimes when those flies get beat up a little bit. They seem to work better. Yeah, um, so what about for, is that, is that pattern crossover for you? So to both the still end, or is there another pattern you'd go to on, uh, you know, on a lake? Uh, for lakes and rivers, uh, nowadays I have a, uh, soft hackle pattern that not too many people know about, but it works on both lakes and rivers and it has a tungsten bead in the center. It's kind of like a caddis pattern. Anybody listening will know what I'm talking about if they've seen it or I've shared it with them. Um, I think I might have seen that on your Instagram. Is it kind of got, uh, it's, a, it's a wet hackle and it's got a bit of a green um, thorax? Yeah, it's, the, it's yeah. the ugly one that doesn't look good, but it fishes well. What do you call that? I don't really call it anything. It's just my go-to one. <laughs> okay, yeah. But it could be a lot of things. I thought the same, when I looked at that fly and I looked at it just before we hopped on this call... And I actually screenshot it, because I'm like, I'm going to tie that up. And it's, uh, it looked like it was, it could be a caddis pupa, it could be an emerging may, it could be a lot of things, right? Yeah, like it, it works all the time. And actually, my husband started tying it in, he calls it the Duracell, and he started tying it in like a darker copper color. Right on. Yeah, that, that, I could see that working too. Yeah, that's one yeah of... it's, it's basically a Mercer's is is what it, the actual pattern came from. I'm definitely coming around to these soft tackle patterns a little more. It's not it's not something I fished a lot. I mean, when I first started, I did, I guess, but I kind of got away from it. It's funny. It's really cyclical. Do you find that with fly patterns? You know, you'll fish something for years, and then you kind of forget about it? Yeah, the Mercers I haven't, but the H&L variant I definitely have left behind and then started just recently using it again and just sunk in the lake. It's mm. awesome, especially on like a midge tip or yeah. like a hover line. Have to give that but a it's amazing the amount of patterns that we use and we think it's just based on moving water right. or this one's just based on still waters, but they can be interchangeable between both. Well, I can't tell you how many times I've asked somebody that maybe hasn't fished a lot of still water, what are you using? Oh, a stonefly. I'm thinking a stonefly. <laughs> what are you using a stonefly in a lake for? But yeah. it, it works, right? Because it might look like a dragonfly. It might, you know. Anyway, I just, I get Oh, it. my ultimate favorite pattern in still waters in the spring and fall is a deer hair gonfis on a hover line. Oh, yeah. And you talk to anybody that knows me, competition or not, they can... They'll watch the retrieve I'm doing, and they think I'm using a gomphus. Because hmm. if, if I'm in practice and I'm using all these different patterns, I'm using these different retrieves that the team is using, and I'm like, oh, I'm not catching any fish, I'll switch over to a gomphus just so I can get that confidence back up. Mm-hmm. So people in competition, they'll see me catching fish, and they're like, oh, she's using a gomphus. I never use a gomphus in competition. <laughs> Maybe twice I've used it. Just because I'm not catching fish, let's try this. Right. But the first time I put a gonfus on a hover line, hmm. we were out at this, I can't tell you, the lake. It was a lake that was on my bucket list, and my husband was working after the pipeline explosion there, so he had limited time. So instead of getting flowers or taking me for dinner or whatever else, he went over my bucket list, and we started going to these lakes. And 
the one lake we had went to, the first day we were there, it was like insane on chronomids. Like our arms hurt. We couldn't even bring in another fish. The next day was tough. So he was literally rowing me around in our little boat and I was sight fishing with a gonfis on a hover line. And it was like, it would land, strip once, and it was galosh. Hmm. And all he kept saying to me was, can you row so I can have a galoosh? And I'm like, <laughs> no. <laughs> and all I could hear from the other anglers out in the deep water fishing their bobbers was, I'm not going to a sinking line. <laughs> and I'm chuckling because I'm thinking, I'm not on a sinking line. I might as well be on a floating line. Right. You think they're taking that as an emerger, Colette? So like I, maybe when it yeah. just before it pops? I have no idea what they're taking it as because we've gone to that same lake and you have to get deep into the lily pads and you cast it right on, you pull it off. And hmm. like, I, I honestly can't say what they're taking it as. It might be a reaction strike that they're taking it because it doesn't look like anything else is coming off the water. Right. I've used it at times when, you know, ants are falling out of the trees when there's a big wind and the fish won't touch it. They definitely want that dark ant pattern. So, yeah, these fish weren't even rising. They were just yeah. going along the shore. Like It's like being in the Bahamas, sight fishing. You cast in front of one, give it a little strip, and they take it. So I think it's just a reaction strike. I don't even know if they know what they're taking. It's just, hmm. I'm going to eat it. Yeah, fair enough. Is there a go-to place? for you to talk fly fishing. So when you're, you know, is there a coffee shop, a fly shop locally, a watering hole? Where do you go to get your fix fly fishing there when, when is, you're not fishing? There's absolutely nothing in Prince George. So we have our small group of people. We have like a chat on Facebook that we talk. And other than that, it's just like, I'll talk about it at work. Like my boss says, don't say fishing in front of Colette. <laughs> And as soon as someone says fish, I'm like, what? What'd you say? And immediately it goes into fishing and the passion of it. And so many people have been brought in just by the conversations that I have with them. Hmm. But we don't have a fly shop. We don't have a coffee shop or a local watering hole. It's just a small group of us in Prince George, really. So there's no fly shop in Prince George? Well, there's a couple guys that sell flies out of their homes, right. but there is no fly shop hmm. at all. We've all talked about opening one. Yeah, well, you think, but it would... there's nothing. It's not a small town. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it's actually the city of the north, so. Yeah, exactly. It's. I mean, you got. That's why I say it's not a small town. Like in my mind, it, like <clears throat> I talked about this a couple weeks ago on the podcast. It seemed like you know, growing up, there was a fly shop in every small town across North America, it felt like, you know, but, um, and it seems odd now that the sport is so big, there seems to be less fly shops, you know, it's more online stuff, but a heck of a lot less brick and mortar. It, yeah, it definitely is. And I know when my dad had his shop in Chetwin, it was way, way back when ICQ is still around. Yeah. Like he was trying to build his website, but it wasn't quite there yet. So he couldn't get into online sales, and being in such a small community of Chetwin, it just dwindled away because you can only survive for so long. There's floods, the fishing year sucks, you don't have people coming in, and Susan is lucky because she has that little, like if you go to Chetwin, it's basically just like a little shop outside of her house, but she has everything in there, and you can get it online. Yeah. Yeah. The biggest thing for me is I don't like to order material online unless I know who I'm ordering from because I like to see it. I like to touch it. I like to know how it's going to look. You order some stuff and you get it. Like CDC dubbing I ordered, and it's still half on the feather. I'm like, oh, well, I'll just keep using the pieces that I strip off and put it back into my drawer to use for dubbing. Right. Like yeah. It's just a half-strip feather is all I end up getting, but you don't know what you're getting when you order it online. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm really bad at picking beads by numbers. I have to see them. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, that's way too, you know what I mean? Like some people are really dialed in when they know I'm using this hook. I need this size bead. I just physically look at it on my tying bench and go, well, that's what I want. Um, <clears throat> but I, that, that's one indication. I'm the same. I'm the same. I, I like to see it. I mean, it's, if you know what you're getting and you know who you're dealing with, I, I know what you mean by that for sure. Yeah. And Susan's got a great shop there. In Chinook, yeah, right? and you know what? I've never been there in person yet. Yeah, but to explain things to her on the phone, she just like sends some stuff, and it's like, yep, yeah, perfect. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted, or it's not. And yeah. then the other guy that we ordered from, and it's so seemingly ridiculous to spend this much money on marabou, but he hand dyes it, he hand picks it. It's Dave Downey, like. His marabou, you can use every single piece hmm. from the whole entire quill. What? It's not you just waste this piece of it. No, you use the whole entire strip. There's not one single pay- piece that goes to waste. And he hand-selects it. He hand-dyes it. Everything is hand-picked and hand-selected. Is this all online? It's Dave, yeah, Dave Downey? I, I can't so? remember. Dave Downey is his name. I can't yeah. remember the name of... His actual fly shop. But if you look up David Downey, yeah. I'll look it up. you'll find his fly shop. But he came down to one of the nationals or, yeah, it was the nationals he came to. And he did like fly tying seminars and everything else. He is hmm. the best character ever. But to know that he handpicks and hand dyes his marabou, you tie those flies and then you pet them. In your fly box. <laughs> well, that's one that's one material that can really vary. Like crappy marabou is like uh, half of it I can't use. You know, it just no. doesn't have that flow in the water, that kind of real fluffiness to it. Or you like take a bunch off the quill and half of it, by the time you're done tying the fly, is already off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, his is like hmm. amazing. I'll check that out. Might I might have to reach out to him. I feel a show coming on there. Yeah, absolutely. He's a he's a character. He's from the Czech Republic, so right on. And he's he's competed in I don't know how many worlds. Hmm. So another competitor as well. Let Let's talk about your now. I just before we started on this chat, I know you're not a huge sports fan, but I always like to ask the question: Is there a sport you tend to follow more than any other, or a team you cheer for? Well, fly fishing, obviously. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, especially yeah, at the competitive no. level. There we go. And uh, yeah, in our house we mostly just watch the finals of the rugby games. Yeah. Yeah. And we're usually cheering for the blacks. So the, the all blacks, the yeah. The all blacks, yeah. Zero. I'd love to see one of those games in person. I know when my husband was there, oh gosh, I can't even remember what year it was. They got like the full on, I can't remember what the cheer is called. Oh, it's a Maori. It's thing. an intimidating, the yeah. Maori one. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was yeah. so looking forward to that. If they do that at the opening ceremonies at the Commonwealth, yeah, because yeah. it's intense. Yeah, yeah, it's intense. When, when he first competed, we didn't have the internet back then, so he's trying to describe it to me, and I'm like, "What? <laughs> They're yelling at you and like making these faces? I don't understand." Yeah, yeah, it's a good little uh, pregame ritual for sure. Fill in the blank for me. When I'm not fly fishing, I'm usually doing what? Time flies or cooking. I read somewhere, and maybe it was a misquote or maybe I misread it, but it said, I hate tying flies. (laughs) Did you say that? I do. I hate tying flies. I hate tying flies when I'm pressured to tie them. Right. So I didn't start tying flies until I started into competitive fishing and even the first time I was invited to be on a team, I was, I get so nervous and I so overtalk myself and they're asking simple questions like, what size of ASB chronometer are you tying? And I'm like, well, I put it into like these little quarter inch strips and blah, blah, blah. No, they're asking me the, the hook size. <laughs> right. I, but I, yeah. I hated tying flies. Like Rob would force me to do it. Like if I wanted a certain fly, like the H&L variant, we couldn't buy them. So hmm. I had to learn to tie them and they're a pain in the butt because it's deer hair wing. And, you know, you're trying to tie it the traditional ways, exactly how it looks. But then when I actually started competing myself on an opposite team as him, I have to tie my own flies. So 
I mm-hmm. don't like tying flies. I no, now I fair. find enjoyment in it in the winter time. Yeah, I get that. But if I'm forced to do it, mm-hmm. ugh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I can relate to that. I, I absolutely, as soon as a, I put the fly rod away, the snow's starting to fly. I get excited for tying, but if I'm going, like I went smallmouth bass fishing the other day and I was looking at my box going, I need to tie some flies. And then I start pressuring myself and I, you know, it's the end of the day, you're tired after work. It's like, oh, I really don't want to sit there. I think I'm going to have a glass of wine and put something on the TV. But, um, <laughs> I know exactly what, what you mean by that. But, um, there are people I talk to that like tying more than, than fishing, you know, that's, Oh my that's, God. Like, Stanton Jack, he loves tie flies. Deb loves tie flies. How do you do that? Like, I'll do it when I'm bored. And normally when I'm tying flies and I have to tie, like, a certain set of flies, you're given this pattern, this is what you're tying, and I typically have my phone set up with the booster somewhere close, or I've pre-downloaded my Netflix shows, so I'm, like, watching those in the background while I'm redundantly tying these flies. (laughs) I honestly do not find enjoyment yeah. in tying flies. I tie, but not flies you'd actually fish. I tie a bunch of experiments through the year, and then I never end up fishing them. Or I do, and they work. Yeah. And I then I that. can't remember what I did. Yeah, I do that all the time. Do you know what what I find, too, is, so I, about, I don't know, I guess I was probably in my early 20s, so this is over 30 years ago, I started a business called Cascadia Fly Fishing Company, and I started tying flies and I would get in my truck and I would drive all around the province and sell these flies to different fly shops. But it was work and I hated it. And it'd be like, I got to tie three dozen Doc Spratleys in green or olive. And it was just like, oh man, if I ever have to, you know what I mean? Like there's no, yeah. there's no fun in that. But if I know I'm going fishing and I'm like, okay, what's going to work? Then I get excited, get to be creative and just doing the same old thing over and over gets... I got, I'm like you, I do one-offs all the time and it drives my buddies nuts. It's like, what's this? I, I don't know, try it. And then it works and then you're like, oh, I don't have another one. But anyway. Well, I, yeah, the one year I tied this one-off fly because when we're at competitions, we always have a rest day. And at the lock style, we have the rest day and then the guys go out with the, I say the guys because it's usually guys. We have like Madoka and Aggie that go out and and compete as well, but the guys always go out with the youth team. So I usually take it as a full-on rest day. And the one time I was like, oh, I'm just going to experiment with all their tying material because I stay, even though I compete on a different team, I stay with my husband with his team. So I'm like, ha, I'm going to use all their stuff. (laughs) And I tied this fly. And I took it out, and I think that morning I was fishing with Brennan Lund. And I was having a hell of a time catching a fish. I even tied the gonfis on and got a fish. And I'm like, okay, oh, that worked once. Okay, now what am I going to do? So I tied on this fly that was an experiment the night before, and it hammered fish. Hmm. And I looked at Brennan, and I'm like, oh, my God, like, I just tied this last night. I only have two. And this one, the tail's already almost off. It looks like a nymph. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I did, actually, thankfully... I think I beat Brennan in that session, just the two of us in the boat. I didn't obviously win first in the whole competition that morning, but got back and everybody's like, oh my God, what'd you use? So my team at the time, I'm like, oh, I use this. And I drop F-bombs massively all the time when I'm fishing, which is (laughs) awful. So they suggested that instead of saying the F word, I say jelly bean. (laughs) And I'm like, that's stupid. It's a really long word when one could just be tied into the other. So that afternoon I was fishing with one of my husband's competitors, Chris, one of his teammates, and he nicknamed the fly the jelly bean because I was out fishing him. And at one point I felt bad for him, so I'm like, this is the retrieve I'm using, and it's a red fly. (laughs) And so then he finally started doing it and was getting into fish, Unfortunately, the wind picked up on Tonkwa. We blasted across the lake. He lost his net on the way. We gave up fishing on the other side, went back to where we were originally fishing. He landed a fish with the retrieve, I told him, with a red fly, not like mine. And he realized he had no net. So I was like, here's mine. And he's like, oh, jelly bean, thanks. (laughs) But I went to tie up a bunch for 
the team when I realized it was working, but because I was staying in the same cabin as my husband and his team on the opposing team, right. I was trying to tie them super fast. So I'm like, getting them out, they're not a complicated fly. But I gave a couple to Johnny. He goes out, he comes back, he's like, it worked. But there was no wires, so it blew apart. I'm like, oh, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> sorry, funny. the jelly bean worked. I love it. I love that story. It's great. And so, you know what's funny, too? You mentioned Brendan Lund. He's actually the first guy I had on the show. It was oh, show, no way. show number one. Yeah. That was awesome. He, we, I, I could tell you another story. He was the team captain of the youth team at the Now's the one time. Right. And we had, he had to leave. I think he had an exam or something to get to for college. And he left. And he was the team captain of the one team. And we had the silent auction. And my husband, who is the world-renowned, like, can do any accent across the world. <laughs> and he happens to play a really good Bubbles from the trailer park. Right. Boys. Right. So at that auction, when we were trying to raise money for the youth team, he's being Bubbles, and we're at this auction. And he spent an ungodly amount of money to get a fly box that I really, really wanted and yeah, that same competition they won first for the youth, and we had to call Brennan on the cell on his phone to say, "Hey, just so you know, you guys won." And he's like, "Oh, so amazing!" And you know, like not just a personal thing for him, but he's so much a team player. Like it doesn't matter yeah. if he's with you or he's against you. When you're in the boat with him, you're working together as a team. I ran into him randomly on the river quite a few years back, and he made an impact. and And he was the first guy I reached out to. Uh, I don't know why. Just kind of, he just seemed like a real likable, real knowledgeable, and really passionate person. Oh, he's like yeah. so down to earth and so passionate, and just yeah. an amazing person all around. Yeah, for sure. It's such a small world. It's just the names you're naming. Uh, most of, them, almost all of them have come on the show. Um. Let's talk work. Um, best job you've ever had. Are you doing it now? Is it, you know, when you're competitive fly fishing? Is it your day job? Well, I wish it could be, and I wish we got paid to do it. But you know what? I chose the job I'm in right now, and I'm in garbage. Okay. I work for waste management, and it's uh, a position that I've just newly been put into. And, yeah. like, I, it's so weird to say, but I had no idea how passionate people were about garbage. Hmm. Like, I never thought when my garbage bin was outside, is somebody going to come pick it up? Who's going to come pick it up? I never waved at the garbage man. I didn't thank them. But working in it, like, I don't, I think it's just the team that I work with hmm. that makes it so amazing. It's not the job that I'm doing or the job that they're doing. It's just having that huge amount of support i'm new to it i was thrown into it and like the team that you work with is what makes the job what it is yeah that's true and i never ever thought i'd be back in management i was like no i don't want to ever be in management i'm gonna drive school bus for the rest of my life so what do you that's what i what do you do do day to day in waste management like you're just um are you describe what you do well it's kind of boring if I describe what I do because I just make sure that everybody's where they need to be. And yeah. like, we have these morning launches that I can't be there for because it's at like 5 a.m. I start at 7, so I can be there for the, the later shift. But it's just getting the team together and, you know, we're going to go do this. And we have contests sometimes, like, is there a hazard? Is there something you're looking at? Like, hmm. It's so weird with garbage because you wouldn't think of it, but... Like, they work hard. They're in and out of their trucks every day. And at the end yeah. of the day, when I get to see them on the shift I am now, it's like, how was your day? Did you have any challenges? What can I do to make your job easier? Like, hmm. dealing with customers. And, yeah, yeah it's, it's hard to explain, but... That sounds that sounds like it covers a lot of... I could see you're dealing... We probably have lots of personalities, lots of um, challenges to deal with, right? And keeping people happy and keeping people yeah. where they're supposed to be. Like, I used to drive school bus, and the kids were easy to say, hey, how you doing today? Right. You pick them up at the end of the day, you're like, hey, did you have a good day? No? Okay, well, what happened? Even the ones at the back of the bus? 
Oh, my kids never sat at the back of the bus. They always <laughs> wanted to sit up near the front until COVID hit. Oh man, I never sat. I always I took a school bus every day to school, and I always sat at the very, very back. I don't know why. Oh, we used to because well, I was in management, and then just went back to just driving school bus at one point because I'm like done with this. Yeah, I had a home bus, and we live quite a ways out of town, so I think I have like seven kids on the bus in the morning. So in the afternoon, there was like Wednesdays were the swap days where the little kids got to sit at the back of the bus and the big kids sat up at the front. Hmm. And so the little kids, even though the big kids always sat near the middle because we'd have conversations and right. I always like to get to know the kids. And But the little kids, when it was their day to sit at the back, they went to the very back of the bus. <laughs> and I have no idea what they said or did back there. I just know they sat properly and did their thing, but they got off the bus. They were so excited. Well, they probably felt like the big kids for a day, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and the big kids on the bus were excited to let them have that because they're like, we remember when it, we couldn't sit back there, nobody would let us. And I'm like, well, can we? <laughs> like, it was always a group decision. Yeah. Can we do this today? And they're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a bus. Yeah, I do protocol. miss driving school bus just for that relationship with the kids because we don't have kids. Yeah. So, yeah, good it stuff. Was, you have a couple have dogs, though. What kind of dogs you got there? I heard some dogs barking oh, there. My oldest one, she's a. Australian Labradoodle. Her name is Penny, a.k.a. Asshole. <laughs> Jellybean? And then we we have one that's 11, and she's a, she's a field lab or an English lab. And she's just like, hey, I'll just do whatever you want to do today. Yeah, pretty chill. What it, whatever the doodle tells me I get to do, I can do. That sounds about right. Yeah. Hmm. They're kind of like kids. Actually, we had an incident the other night where I had my great nieces over, and they're nine and seven, and the seven-year-old was like, Auntie, I have to talk to you. And she walked me all the way down to the dock, and unfortunately, the dock is basically on dry land right now because the water's so low in our lake. Right. And we're sitting there talking and blowing bubbles, and the non-water dog, the doodle, just jumps off the end of the dock. (laughs) And she's on a weed bed. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell? So I had, like, literally, I was like, can you stay here? I lowered myself down to make sure it was actually weightable because I had to go and save her because she wouldn't have been able to swim back. The water's too low. The weeds are up too high. Right. Yeah, I was That's... like, what were you doing? Meanwhile, the water dog, the lab, is like, hey, what's well, going on? Think how many times she's probably jumped off that dock before into the water, right? It's just a habit, I guess. Yeah. Well, she's never done it. Oh, like the, our lab is oh, launched see. off the end of the dog, but <laughs> our doodle is never, ever. She's not a water dog. She's like, oh, I'll swim in if I have to. Right. And actually, the on Saturday, we watched a fox. And that was the cool thing because we had our niece up. She lives in Langley. And we felt guilty because we're working for the two weeks she's here. And we do the odd thing around the property. And we have 18 acres. And there's trails around. And... They got their first five bear encounters while they were here. Wow. Yeah, they got to watch two cubs run across the yard playing. And we're like, whoa, where's mom? <laughs> Don't go yeah, outside, no city folk. <laughs> but then on the day that they were leaving on Saturday, we watched this fox. It buried something under a tree. And we're watching it. And then it walks up onto the dock and picks up a rope that's in its way and moves it to the other side of the dock. And then two seconds later, it, like, launched, like, totally pounced off the dock onto something. We're like, should we go down and see if it's okay? (laughs) And about three minutes later, it came running up onto the grass and did the typical I'm a wet dog, race around the yard, and then take off into the bush. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like you got quite the wildlife encounters going on in in your neighborhood you said you said something there that stuck with me you said our lake you got a lake you got your own lake is that what you're telling me no we don't have our own lake it's it's a community lake nobody ever comes on it though because it's not a very nice lake it's a really good lake for teaching kids to fly fish on because you get a lot of coarse fish okay so like our northern pike minnows are the size of a giant largemouth bass Hmm. like you bring them up and you lip them yeah yeah, and they're massive. They get big in my area too. Yeah. yeah, but teaching kids to fly fish on this lake is kind of redundant because 
every cast they catch a fish, hmm. and then you take them to a trout lake, and you're like, patience, child, patience. <laughs> is that a big passion of yours, getting new people into fly fishing? It absolutely is. And I think a lot of times when somebody says fishing, and I'm like, whoa, you said what? <laughs> and I start talking about it. Like, one of the guys at work, he bought a new fly rod, and I set him up with line and a reel and some tippet. It's finding the time to be able to get out on the water with them. Mm-hmm. So, like, I basically was like, you want to cast in the driveway? I'll bring a really bad line. And I'll teach you, but it's just having the time to get out when his day's off and my day's off coincide. But the passion that people hear in my voice, I think, really resonates with them wanting to get into it. Yeah, I can see that. We're chatting today with Colette Stroud. Now, Colette is out of Prince George, British Columbia, Canada, a competitive uh, fly fisher since, well, 09 and probably before that, provincial, national, um, even Commonwealth uh, Fly Fishing Championships in 2020. Now, you started telling me about this journey before I kind of started hitting the record button, but um, walk us through what competitive fly fishing first off does for you. Like, um, what does it do for you? Well, in the beginning, I thought it was just hocus-pocus, whatever. I know this, I know that. My husband got into it before I did, so when we would go out fishing together and he's trying to show me these new techniques, I'm like, whatever, I can catch fish. But actually getting into it and being able to experience it with these people that are local across the world, it's just a huge learning curve of what you can learn in a quick amount of time. Like, mm-hmm. when I look in my boat bag, I never thought I'd have that many reels with that many lines on them. When I first started stillwater fishing, it was bobber and dry line. Right. As chronomid fishing, I didn't even know how to do it. It was like, set the line here, do whatever. But now it's just like, what you learn in competitive angling from all these people, like, going all the time and it's every angler that you fish with whether it's somebody in your group on the rivers and especially in the boats for still water because that's a huge one for me that i lack in but just being able to learn all these different techniques like quickly right i don't have to read about it even though i still do i still read about it i look up these patterns but just being able to be in the boat with them and learn from them some people won't share and a lot of people will like right. 99.9% of the people will share what they're doing or you just watch them and mm-hmm. learn from them. How much of what you do is countdown method? <laughs> A lot, but it's it's really hard because we go from, we can, recreational angling, 90% of it, we're, we're anchored. And then the 10% of it when we're out recreational angling is practicing. We're doing the log style. Mm-hmm. And most of that we don't do on the local lakes because people look at us and they have no idea what we're doing. Whereas, like, in competition, you're constantly lock style. If you anchor and you're practicing a certain method, when you're lock style, it depends on the wind speed as opposed to your retrieve speed. So it's always trying to be cognitive of how fast am I moving and what is my fly doing? What could it be doing? And am I retrieving at the right speed? Hmm. Like there's times where you could be doing a slow figure of eight and there's other times on Tonkwa when you could be roly pulling as fast as you possibly can. And well, I hope that fish takes that fly. <laughs> right. I, I, so you don't fish out of a normal boat, do you? Yeah, we fish out of normal boats. Oh, I've got do? a 14. Yeah, I've got a 1448 lens that we fish out of. Okay. I read somewhere that you fished out of like a, uh, you know, like, um, like a what do you call it drogue yeah we do yeah most times when we're when we're practicing for competition we do fish with the drogue but it's out of the 1448 okay okay and there's so times my husband has a custom coffler don't ask me the size or dimensions i know it's really wide i could put a hammock in there <laughs> but there's times we'll throw the paradrogue out of that right it's a heavier boat so it actually it actually holds the drogue a lot better so then, so in the in these lock style competitions, you can use pretty normal boats. You're just using a drogue. 
That's right. Okay. Like in the UK, they use um, a different style of boat that's a deeper V. Right. Hmm. But typically, we're just using our John boats with a, a yeah. drogue. And previously, we used to use the Minn Kota sock. And now, it's in the past two years, we've been able to use the paradrogue, which is basically what Johnny explained as the big curtain. Right, right. I'll never forget when we were using the Minn, the Minn Kota sock in Tunkwa Wind with, like, massive white caps. And this guy came along, and he's using... Um, a paradrogue made out of duct tape. <laughs> and he, we're whipping by, and he's just slowly, dri- not even part of the competition. He's just trying it out. It's amazing what you can do with a little duct tape. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Um, What's that Red Green says? Uh, yeah, I think that is a Red Green quote, actually. Yeah. What I wanted to ask you about is, some, is somebody that fly fishes both, you know, for fun as a recreational hobby, but also competitively. Is there equipment that you prefer to use? And I'm not looking necessarily to plug any brand of rod or, or lines, but what what are your go-to? I'm always curious, uh, you know, when it's when it matters. What are you using? What what kind of rods are you throwing? And maybe throw some lengths and, and weights out there. What What's your go-to for the still right now? Well, typically for the still waters, it's like a at least a 10-foot rod. Right. If you're fishing log style or anything else, just the ten foot rods just cast better and further and I don't have like a super long cast to begin with, but like I fish Reddington, G Loomis, Sage. I don't have a preference and mm. I have this super awful reel for still waters that I use it for nymphing, so I, I never expect a lot of line to come off of it. But when I have to reel it in it's like calling in the loons on, on the rivers. I think they come from the lake to attack my line. But I don't have a preference. If it, if it casts and it fishes, yeah. like typically, though, I, I do use and I do prefer the airflow lines Okay, is, is what I use. They just have like less memory. Yeah. I remember the one time when we were in New Zealand, I had too much bourbon the night before, and Brian... I have trouble with his last name, Daniel Kavich. Yeah. We went out for our practice session, and there I am, stripping off the line off my reel, and it's all coiled below us, and Brian and I are literally shoulder to shoulder, sitting in our chair, trying to cast, and I cast out, trying to get the knots and everything else out of my line, and he looks at me, he's like, you didn't stretch your line this morning? And I'm like, no, did you not see how I looked this morning? <laughs> And while I'm doing that, I catch one of the first fish in the first two hours that we wrote there. I'm like, see, you just have to count down. <laughs> There's nothing worse though than having a lot of coils on your line, and we, I think oh. we've all been there. Yeah, and when when you're actually competing, you do want to make sure that your lines are stretched and you're ready to go. It was thankfully just a practice session, but it was still so embarrassing. I, I can't remember the guy's name that we were with at the time. Rob's sitting next to me. He'll know. What's his last name? Oh, yeah. The guy's name was Peter. But he knew the lake. It was like right. being on Jurassic Lake. It was so foggy that morning. We're freezing our asses off. We're coming through the fog, and all of a sudden there's palm trees. <laughs> Brian looked at me. He's like, is there pterodactyls too? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, maybe. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, typically, like, the airflow lines just, I find they don't coil as much. I mean, you yeah. you still have to unwind them. They will tangle up on you if you're using a fly that twists a lot in the water. And any line will do that. But I just find that airflow lines don't hold memory and coil is bad yeah. on the on the reel. Yeah, that's well said. And as far as rods go, well, I mean, you just cast whatever can cast. Johnny and I actually won, uh, what was it, the G. Loomis? X6s we won at the Trojan Pond the one what? year. The IMX, maybe? Maybe it was or the GLX, IMX. GLX, I, GLX? The GLX, GLX, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah, we won those when we were at the Trojan Pond fundraiser, which is one of my most favorite competitions. That's what actually got me into competitive fly fishing was going to that fundraiser one mm. and just getting calmly entered into it. And Wayne Yoshizawa gave me 
I didn't have any luck in the morning. I'm like, I have never fished for three hours and not caught anything. And he gives me this big, bright, chromey with red rib, his little chronomid, and he's like, put this on. So I literally put it like six, six inches from the indicator, cast into shore where I saw the fish rising. And I think it was 62 or 63 centimeter fish I caught that year. Hmm. And it caught me the ladies' big fish. Wow. Which I was like, why do we have ladies' big fish? But at the same time, it was also <laughs> the yeah. biggest fish. That's awesome. So I did get a picture for that. You know, I had a lot and of And that people, was when I first met Deb. I had a lot of people tell me that that Trojan Pond fishing uh, event was kind of what got them going in the competitive thing. Well, it's just like, yeah, because I think that's, yeah, my husband went there the one time. He got invited, and then that's where he met Todd. And then he ended up actually competing and then getting into Canadian and mm-hmm. world and Commonwealth competitions after that. Yeah. Good stuff. I'm, I'm going to ask you to paint a picture Colette for us. Um, your dream day, your perfect day on the water, your way, just walk us through that. Like is first off, are we, is this a still water trip? Is this moving water? You know, what kind of species you chasing? Is there, is there bourbon at the end of the day to drink <laughs> anymore? <Maybe> no, <laughs> There's um, no more bourbon. <laughs> walk us through that. Oh, man. I swear, every year when we do our trips, we have the perfect day on the water. And if I could replay one or redo it, other than I'd love to go to Mongolia and fish for Taman, Taiman, I think it's Taman, out in like the remote areas with giant squirrel patterns, just walking amongst the giant rocks and in the mountains, but I would love to replay a day we had in Andros a couple years ago where we were walking and waiting and we were literally walking amongst lemon sharks and casting towards tailing bonefish. And it was just an absolutely amazing day that day. Like just to be out on the water, you know, most people just fish off the boat and the people that we were with, they couldn't believe that we got to actually walk and wade. And our guide dropped us off, and he's like, just walk up into that bay. And we walked up into the bay, and it was perfectly calm water. There's no winds. You're not worrying about casting into, like, 40-knot winds. And you're just looking at these tailing bonefish. And while you're walking, there's, like, the adrenaline rush of not just catching a bonefish, but the fact that there's lemon sharks swimming amongst your legs at the same time. That and then hooking wild. into the bonefish. And I, even the smallest bonefish will take you into your backing in seconds. Hmm. Yeah. That sounds pretty good. It was pretty awesome. How many years ago was that trip? Uh, that would have been about three years ago. We were on North Andros. We stayed at um, Big Charlie's. That was so remote. That was the scariest trip I'd ever taken on a plane. Hmm. Like a 15-minute flight from Nassau to Andros and... I'm pretty sure there was, like, gorilla tape on the windshield. The seats weren't even bolted down to the floor. It sounds You're rustic. Like <laughs> flying, like, 500 feet above shark-infested waters. Yeah, duct tape and is not where... rush be free. Yeah. I don't want to see duct tape on a plane. Sorry. No. That's, you know... And, and the pilot looked like he just got his license, like, his oh. driver's license. Oh, boy. Yeah, well, but look what it got you, right? Look how good of a trip it was. Oh, it's amazing. But we've also done trips in, like, Hawaii where we were staying on Kona, and we stayed at our friend's condo there, and we'd go out in the morning and just go fishing on the beach, and you don't know what you're going to catch. And the one time I ended up getting, it was a puffer fish following a vampire leech. And my husband could hear me yelling down the beach, and I, he's like, just lift your fly out of the water. <laughs> Because this thing would not stop chasing my fly, and it's all puffed up. Huh. I had no idea at the time that they weren't, I, in my mind, they were poisonous. And like six months later, I watched a show where, no, you can just pick them up, and they release the water like a, a water fountain. But I'm like, it won't stop chasing it. <laughs> it's like, lift per- it out of the water. <laughs> Persistent. <laughs> but we had, like, people sitting on shore watching us, and we knew, like, we'd go out there at 6 a.m., start fishing by about 10 people would start showing up on the on the beaches to relax and swim and we had spectators at the one beach and they're like are you from colorado 
like, no, we're from British Columbia. Oh, where's that? Yeah, well, I get that a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it's, uh, it sounds like you are, you know, living your best life on the water and uh, spending a lot of time doing it. Is there, is there anything about the pastime that you love so much that you'd like to change? Or is there anything that kind of irks you, Colette, about the fly fishing world? Yeah, I I wish I could go back to the days with my dad on the water where, you know, like even my dad's a purist. Like I I have a tough time getting him out with me now, with all the knowledge I have, and I always have to go back to being basic. But at the same time, when my dad brought me up on the water, you see somebody struggling, you share what you know, they're willing to take what you have to tell them. I just find social media so damaging in so many ways. Like if somebody's mm. handling a fish the wrong way, people immediately post right to the the post rather than private messaging them or, yeah. you know, people giving up certain places where they're at and people feeling the need to like have to blur out their background because people will recognize it. And I just think with social media, there's not enough respect for each other and there's not enough respect for the fishery itself. Mm. So I wish we could go back to the days of no cell service and and no social media where you feel the need to say something mean to somebody that you wouldn't actually say to them in person. Yeah. Think of all the spare time we'd have too. (laughs) Oh yeah, exactly. Right. Like I find myself a lot of times I have to set a timer for TikTok some days. Yeah. Hey, you got five minutes. I haven't jumped into that rabbit hole. My kids are all over that, but that's, uh, Yeah. Well, Rob tells me he doesn't watch TikTok, but he does the reels on Instagram. It's the same thing. Fair enough. But what I find a lot of times, too, is not just that, but, I mean, being a woman on the water, I always tried to blend in. I never wanted to wear pink waders or, you know, a lot of times Rob and I would be fishing even before we got married and we're dating. They'd be like, hey, how's your buddy doing? He's like, hey, my girlfriend's out fishing me. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just, it's, just become so much either bullying or wanting to be prominent on the water. And I just feel it just, it, we just need to be neutral. Hmm. Like it doesn't matter who you run into on the water. If they're struggling, you help them. Yeah. If they're doing great, hopefully you can ask them and they'll be helpful. But I have also had the opposite where I'll launch my boat at a local lake and head out to a spot. I mean, we just recently got a fish finder which has helped with drop-offs and stuff. But previous to that, we just always read the water. But go out to the same spot, and all of a sudden, somebody will be parked like 10 feet from me. I'm like, um, that's in my casting range. Yeah, yeah, that's... So... that. See, there's a theme here you're talking, and I, I feel the same. It's etiquette, right? So whether it's it's etiquette on the water, it's etiquette on social media, it's like just, just common decency, right? It's like... If I'm anchored here or if I'm fishing this piece of water, you got this whole lake. You don't have to sit right beside me. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, uh, I don't know. It's almost like there should be lessons sometimes, I think. And I think there's a lot of new people, too, that are taking it up that maybe, you know, they don't know any better, right? Did I lose you? No, I'm still here. Sorry. Um, Sorry, one of my dogs just, like, plowed into me. You okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Okay. Um, but no, it's like, if they're new or not, you just have to let them know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's what's on the uh, horizon for the next little bit? I know I know the world of competitive fly fishing is, is kind of, uh, well, it's in a bit of a holding pattern, just being quite frank. I'm, what's coming up? Well, hopefully some local competitions. Mm-hmm. I, uh, Worlds in 2023 are merit. Right. So, pardon me, I'm still winded. You know, take, hopefully... take, take your time. Your dog winded you? <laughs> yeah, it's just like plowed right into me, knocked me over. Oh, jeez. But no, in 2023, they're in merit. So, that is definitely the next. That'll be the third women's world competition. Obviously, Norway and Finland are out with COVID. But local, hopefully everybody gets under control of COVID and we can go ahead with that. 
Right. Anything anything on your bucket list? Anything you want to achieve fly fishing wise? I mean, you came so close on that Commonwealth trip, and because I know you mentioned to me that you weren't even aware that you're the first uh, first woman to represent Canada at the um, Commonwealth Fly Fishing Championships. That never that. Well, that's a long story. We talked about that earlier, so I'll edit that in so people will know what the heck I'm talking about. But um, yeah, that was actually Evo that brought that to my attention. I actually had to ask because I'm like, what about Kathy Ruddick and and Catherine? But they all competed at the world's level, and obviously, I didn't ever expect to be in competitive fly fishing. But being at the world's level would definitely be a huge advantage. But for me, competing at the Commonwealth in amongst a mixed team with men, that meant a lot. Yeah. Like, yes, I want more women to be in the sport and I want more women to compete, but at the same time for me, when I get into a boat, I don't care if you're male or female, I just want to fish. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, when when I found that out, it, it, it put a lot of pressure on and it meant a lot, but at the mm. same time, I'd also like to have a women's team and have more women competing. We've got Aggie... Um, Megan Oshie, who fills in, that's Todd's daughter, and Carly Sawchuk, she fills in. But I'd like to see them progress to, they started basically where I was, where I'm just a fill-in person, to be able to get into it. And um, Emily Roger, Roger's out of Ontario. Um, like She competed, I think, in one of the nationals not too long ago. And and she's a life coach and could bring a lot of inspiration and just upbeat positivity to women. But I think women in general just have to be more supportive and and less gender specialized. Like you're on the water, yeah. you're fishing. Yeah. That's it. Like so, we so don't no, have to No neon make pink a, waiters for you? Yeah. No, no <laughs> neon pink waiters for me. I just I just I don't know. I, I have issue with having to be people be aware that I'm a female and I'm here and I'm doing this. Like, I think I already surprised some people when they're having trouble backing their boat up into the water and I've practiced and can do it. You're new. I'm not going to judge you for it. I was there at one point too, whether you're male or female. I think it's just everybody has to support each other, not just be, this is who I am and this is what I want to be and you need to do this because I am this yeah i get what you're saying just follow the passion follow the sport and and, yeah exactly and i get so beat down all the time because i say that really but i'm like i just want to fish yeah no i i get it and and i've never been in a position where somebody makes me feel less than or i get into a boat and somebody's like oh you're a girl yeah i I've, i've never been put in that position with anybody that i've ever fished with I do that to the youth. I'm like, hey, can you drive the boat? Good, because I can't. <laughs> yeah, well, keep up the good work with, uh, you know, getting people into the sport. Hopefully the competitive thing uh, turns around here with COVID and you get back on the water in these comps. Thanks so much, Colette, for taking the time and, and sharing your fly fishing story with us today. Thanks so much, Mark. You've been listening to a chat with Colette Stroud out of Prince George, British Columbia, Canada, competitive fly fishing since 2009. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.